Today, we are looking at Jesus, as we've called this whole sermon series. However, we're looking specifically at the fact that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Because as Pastor David and I got together and we're talking about this sermon series, we realized early on that there can be a problem with preaching a sermon series on Jesus. Pretty soon, we can get to the point where we only see Jesus as a fully human being. And then what happens is we can be guilty of sort of turning Jesus into one more self-help person. He absolutely is a model of how to live. He's absolutely an example of the best way to conduct ourselves, and we've looked at that. But if we only look at that human side of Jesus, we are missing who Jesus is. Amen? I'm going to say that again. If we only look at the human side of Jesus, we're missing who he is. Amen? Because the Bible teaches that God became one of us, and that's one of the mysteries that is hard for us to fathom. In John chapter 1, for instance, we learn that Jesus became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, John goes on to say, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Yes, throughout Scripture, there's many places in the New Testament where we learn of the divinity of Christ. And so, as we're putting this series together and we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, let's remember that we are learning about one who is fully perfect human and fully perfect God. And that's who our Savior Jesus is, and that's who we give our lives to. Now, there are two errors that the church has made over the years, and we call them heresies. One is to see Jesus as only a human being. One of the ways in which that has been seen, and I can reference certainly other theological heresies, but one was docetism, where Jesus was seen and understood to be God, but only appeared to be human. The problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not our faith, and that is a heresy of the early church. But it's one that people continue to make if we only see him as holy other, and not also one of us. Others would see Jesus as only human. One of the heresies that was in the early church was called adoptionism, where Jesus was only human, but somehow was adopted by God. But again, that is taking, again, that idea that then he's sort of a self-help person, just the best one out there. Now, I will tell you, he's a better one to follow than all the other things that people are, are turning to and watching, But the truth is, that again is not how we understand Jesus. Why does it matter? Because only a perfect human could pay the price for the sins of another person. If I mess up, I can't pay you the price for your sins because I have to pay the price for my own sins. I've done my own stuff wrong. So it's only one who's a perfect human could do that. But that still only allows Jesus to be the Savior for one person. Only God could pay the sins for the whole world. Amen? Amen. So perfect God, perfect human. Likewise, only a human could really give us guidance on how to live our lives. I have a great dog. Her name is Elsa. And she gets life better than me sometimes. But at the end of the day, she's still a dog. And so I'm not going to take advice from her on how to live. So again, only a human could really live life and help us understand how to live our lives, but only God would get it right every time. Because we're just going to mess it up. And if the best you get is Pastor Stan's advice, 
Ask my wife how often I get that right. One of her favorite sayings she says to me is, how come you preach about these things, but you don't put them all into practice? And I said, if I didn't mess up, what could I talk about on Sunday morning? So that's the truth. We are human beings. Jesus is perfect God, perfect human. And so as I approach Jesus, I always have the understanding that I can learn from him, but I'm not Jesus. Hear us? That's how we all should approach our Savior. He's great to learn from, but he's so different from us that I never want to just reduce him to us. Now, we have that experience in life anyhow. There's times we go through life on smaller levels that we realize that we're in the presence of somebody who is different than us and can do stuff that we can't do. True? Well, my friend Bella's here. Bella, come up here for a moment. Bella Figlioli is a little bit younger than me. Did you notice that? Now, I run and I try to stay in pretty good shape, but let's be honest, this is not a 63-year-old male pastor standing here. So, for instance, Bella, do a split in front of our congregation. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Can't do it. That's beyond what I could do. Now, turn it the other direction and face her. Okay? No matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be able to do that. Let's try one more thing. Let's try a flip here. Now, I'm not even going to try this, but let's see what happens here. You can be seated. <laughs> the truth is, we could continue doing that. Because no matter how much I can do, there's things that I can be in the presence of someone else who's totally different. Amen? and can do beyond what I can do. But even more than a human being being able to do that is being in the presence of God. Hear the difference? We can see that on a human level, but when we're in the presence of Christ, we're in the one who even more so than a 63-year-old guy looking at a young girl who's in high school, who does cheer and acrobatics and whatever is how much more amazed do we need to be in awe when we're in our Savior's presence. That's how you should approach him. Understanding that he loves you and he gave his life for you, but he's more than just one of us. He's divine. He's God. He's God become human. It literally at times makes no sense to us. And that's why in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, we hear about the transfiguration. These guys being up on a mountain and seeing someone who just changes in front of their eyes that they certainly couldn't do that. Or a demon-possessed boy needing prayer and Jesus saying, you just pray all the time. Well, guess what, folks? I got news for you. We don't pray all the time. We're going to forget. We're going to mess up. Remember? Perfect human being, beyond that being God, never messes up and always can show us the right thing to do, but we're not going to be that. We're not going to get it right in every single instance. Or we go on and he predicts his own death, and we're going to talk about that. I got news for you. No matter how much your fear gets in your brains and you think you know tomorrow, you don't. No matter how much we are convinced of certain things are going to happen, we do not know the future. Jesus holds the future. God knows the future. He even knew people's thoughts. We see the disciples getting in an argument along the roadside, and he asks them what they're talking about, knowing full well what they're talking about, because when they don't answer him, he shows them through a story and a child 
what it means to be humble and what it means to live the life we're supposed to live. And he always speaks God's wisdom, reminding us that God is for us, not against us. That God wants you and me to understand that all these preoccupied things that we have in this world, they don't really matter. Hear that? That's God speaking. That's not me speaking. He's saying even my hand isn't worth it compared to my relationship with God and, and living forever in eternity and in God's presence. Certainly my car's not worth it. Or how do we elevate our jobs? Or our job security? Or these human relationships? Or our homes? Or the next vacation? Something happens and we get sick and we miss a vacation and the world ends for us. It doesn't. Jesus reminds us that all these things on this earth that we make such big deals of are nowhere in comparison to what God has in store for us and what God wants to do in our lives today. Because the truth is, Jesus is God even when we don't see it. You know what? God doesn't really care if you see him as God or not. He's still God. Jesus doesn't walk around and say, oh my goodness, these people don't see today. I really am having an insecure problem here today. I need to convince them. He's okay with us not seeing it because there's times when we don't see it. And therefore, he reveals himself to us, but it doesn't take our confession of Jesus being God to make Jesus God. If we all mess it up, it doesn't change who he is. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody where they try to tell you who you are and you realize they have no idea who you are? Well, that's how our relationship is with Jesus. People can get it wrong all over the place, and trust me, the church has messed it up themselves over the years and continues to mess it up, and that doesn't change anything. Our limited, failed thinking doesn't change who Jesus is. Jesus is God even when we don't see it. That's why in chapters two, or verses 2 through 13, we read about Peter and James and John who went out for a hike with their friend. We were just in New Hampshire. We had the same kind of thing. Regina and I took Ruby and Henry out for a little hike one day. Now, you know what we were? Grandparents. Do you know what Jesus was? God. There's a difference when you go out with a hike with Jesus versus Stan and Regina or Grandpa and Grandma. And then at that moment, we're told that they saw the splendor of God in human form. And the Bible says Jesus was literally transfigured in front of them. In verse 2, we read that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The literal word that's used here for transfigured means changed in a way in which others could see that there was a change. It wasn't just that Jesus says, hey, I've changed in front of you. And it wasn't that they were just imagining something. All of a sudden, the glory of God, the transfiguration takes place, and they see something that made no sense to them because they saw who God was in human form. He was transfigured. He was changed. Now, that's also interesting because when we think about life, we realize that there is change that takes place just naturally. But that's not what this was. For instance, a number of years ago, Bella was a little bit smaller than she is now, and I held her up in front of our congregation, and I baptized her. Guess what? On that day, she couldn't do what she did here today. She's grown a little bit over the years, and we do that. We grow, and we develop, and we change. That's a form of being transfigured, but that's still not what Jesus is. 
Jesus does a transfiguration that's more than human growth. It's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. I got news for you. You're being transfigured today, whether you like it or not, and think about it or not. If you pray and trust Christ and read scriptures and seek to live a Christian life and allow the Holy Spirit to take control of your life, you are changing even when you don't see it. And sometimes we as Christians get discouraged because we don't see it. And then we get frustrated. And we only look at our failures and we fail to see the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. I've used the illustration before, but, you know, years ago I was in seminary and taking a Greek class, and we were about halfway through the Greek class, and the professor realized we were all getting discouraged because we weren't seeing the change that was taking place, so he had us pull out chapter one and write out the Greek alphabet, and he said, you remember how hard that was for you at the beginning of the semester? Look how easy it is for you today. You've gotten better whether you know it or not. Same thing is true in our spiritual lives. We're growing. God's working in your life. The Holy Spirit's present. In 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 3, verse 18, the exact same word that's used for transfigured about Jesus being changed in front of the disciples is used for us. It says, we are being transformed, transfigured, changed. This comes from the Lord. You see, Jesus, God, is working in your life. Stop getting discouraged. Stop looking at where you messed up and start praying and looking at how God is changing us. Because remember, we're not here to tell you what to do today. Jesus' message for us today is not work harder to become a better Christian. It's accept the fact that we are building a relationship with Jesus who's God, who's working in our life, and he's doing the work changing us. Amen? Amen. Those are different things. Because I can only go as far as I can go on my efforts. But when I allow the Holy Spirit to take control of my life, now God's working in my life, and that's the one that we build our relationship with. Jesus, who is God. Look at the New Testament and look at some of the stories. We read about a religious leader who killed Christians, but was transfigured. He was transformed. He was changed into the greatest missionary the church has ever known, the Apostle Paul. Or we read about the guy that I referenced when we were having communion, the guy named Peter who was sitting there at the Last Supper declaring that no matter what, he wasn't going to mess up, only later that night to deny Jesus three times. He was transformed into a far better pastor than I'll ever be. He's the one who was privileged with preaching the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Then I read about a woman She's described different times, and we don't know if it's always the same woman. She certainly is the one who was demon-possessed. We think also from one of the other passages in Scripture, she was probably a prostitute. Do you know how God transformed her life? She became the first evangelist. She's at the tomb, and she gets to go out and tell everybody that Jesus is the Savior. He's raised from the dead. You see, that's what God does in our lives. That doesn't come from hard work. That comes from inner transformation. That comes from building a relationship and getting to know Jesus so that when we are in the presence of one who, yes, is perfectly human and can identify with us, but also we're building a relationship with one who's God, then God's working in our lives. That's far better than just the best advice that somebody can give you. 
And if you come this morning expecting that the best you're going to get is the best of Pastor Stan thinking, I got news for you. Nothing I can say to you can compare to getting a personal relationship with our Savior who gave his life for you, who puts the Holy Spirit in your life, that as you struggle and as you move through life is changing us from the inside out. Amen? Amen. That's what we're here for. To understand that that's who we want to know. Far too many people settle for just an earthly Jesus. Just a nice guy who, who fights battles and does things in this world but doesn't change anybody's life. Our lives need to be changed. Because the other thing about Jesus being more than just a human being is he knows the future. That is freaking incredible, folks. You see, we worry about stuff and we think we know the future. And then people do studies and they say, write down all the things that you're worried about that are going to happen in the future. 20% at most even come close to ever happening. We get it wrong 80% of the time, even anything at all. And when you get down to really what we think is going to happen, it's far lower than that. Because our brain and our limited human thinking only takes us to our flawed, limited human thinking. But that's not who we build a relationship with. I'm inviting you to get to know your Savior, who's perfectly human, and God. God incarnate, who holds your future. That doesn't mean he's going to whisper in your ear and tell you something about tomorrow so that you get to have an advantage over everybody else. But how do I know that Jesus knows the future and human beings can't ever get the future? Because last week, Powerball happened. And it jumped all the way to $1.6 billion. That means that every person who went scrambling to the store to buy those tickets, sorry folks, I thought they were a dollar. Today I learned there were two. That means that I didn't buy one because I didn't even know the price of them. But the truth is, everybody who thought they had it all figured out and they knew what that ticket was, they all got it wrong. Because we don't know the future. However, if people did know the future... And you won Powerball, so would everybody else, because they would all know the future too. So your $2 ticket would be worth probably a buck fifty when you cashed it in. And you'd say, I thought I won Powerball. And they'd say, yeah, but everybody knew the future. They all got it right. You see, we don't get it. We can't see the future. We can't see tomorrow. So all the stuff that we worry about, all the times that we grab our will back and worry and bring it on to ourselves, It's all because we're just not getting to know the one who does know the future, who holds our future, who cares about us. Mark 9, verse 30 to 32. They went on from there, and they passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they're afraid to ask him. Yes, Jesus knowing the future, being God, means we can trust him because he has a bigger picture than we ever have. He sees stuff that you and I can't comprehend. And there's times in our life when things make absolutely no sense because we only are looking at it from our limited viewpoint. In Romans, we're told that God knew his people in advance. He knew, believe it or not, years ago, thousands of years ago, 
what pew you'd be sitting in. Whether or not you were going to sit here and say, would the guy please end because this sermon is going on too long? He knew that thought far before you even had it on your mind. Because Jesus knows the future. And trusting in him is trusting in one who's God. This means no matter where you are today, no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're feeling good about or bad about or anxious about or looking at our society and saying, can things get worse? I don't know. Are they going to get better? I don't know. But I do know who does know. And I'm putting my trust in him, not in everybody else who's doing all their prognostications and taking their polls and telling you what's going to happen ahead of time, only afterwards to get all discouraged because they say, okay, which one of us got it the closest? That's not what we do when we put our hands in the, li- in the Savior's hands. Fanny Crosby was a wonderful hymn writer. She wrote over 9,000 hymns, including among them were Blessed Assurance, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, to God be the glory. Rescue the perishing. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Get the point? Woman wrote some pretty famous hymns. She also was blind. She lost her eyesight as a child because a doctor had come in when she was very young and had put hot compacts on her eyes and she went totally blind. So now you have this great hymn writer who has this horrible tragedy that happened in her life as a child. It's interesting that she was under contract from her publishing company to write three hymns per week. There was a problem with that. She wrote about six to seven hymns per day. So you know what she did? She started using other names. She started submitting hymns under pseudonyms because she didn't want people to open up a hymnal and see Fanny Crosby's name listed on every page. One day, an evangelist came to her and said these words, you know, Fanny, I think it's a pity that the master didn't give you sight when he showered you with so many other amazing gifts. Now, I'm sure that the minister or the evangelist meant well, but Fanny Crosby's response was this. Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been this? You see, I had time on this earth where I was able to see, but my one petition would have been this. I would have wished to have been born blind because then when I get to heaven, the first thing that I will ever see will be my Savior's face. You see what she's able to do? She was able to see the pain and the struggles and the negative things of this world and say, it doesn't matter in comparison to my knowing Jesus because he knew I was going to be blind before I was born. He knew what was going to happen, and I trust him, and I give my life to him because that's what it means to be in the presence of one who is divine. Now, let me tell you something else about Fanny Crosby who never felt sorry for herself. Because she had no eyesight, And because she was able to focus on the things that mattered her in her life, she memorized the entire Pentateuch, verse by verse. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I wonder how she ever did Leviticus and Numbers, but that's a sermon for another day. She didn't stop there. She also memorized, verse by verse, the entire four Gospels, 
the book of Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and most of the Psalms. What a difference it makes in our life when we can put our hands in the one who's divine, the one who's God, the one who knows the future even when we don't, the one who gets life and gave his life for us and cares about us unconditionally. You see, Jesus is not just a self-help guru. He's God. He's God who came to earth to be one of us, to give his life for us, to give us guidance, to allow us to know that, yes, we wander off and we fall into all of our different areas, but if we would trust him and build a relationship with him, nothing, including our eyesight, could compare. Sounds strangely similar to what Jesus was explaining to his disciples when he was saying, even your eyes aren't worth it compared to your relationship with God. Your hand, your feet. All the things that we think we couldn't live without, once we understand that our lives are given to the Savior of this world, perfect God, perfect human, who sacrificed everything because of his love for us, we now have more than just somebody who gives us good advice. But there's one last thing that I want us to hear this morning. Not only... Is Jesus God, whether or not we see it or not? You can argue with me all you want, even. You can walk out of here and say, I don't see it that way. And you know what? Jesus doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't care what I think. Like, if I get up in the morning and I make a decision, I, just, I think I'm going to live my life, and I don't think Jesus is divine today. Jesus looks at me and says, well, that didn't really change anything. That's on you, not on me. He's God no matter what. And the truth is, he knows my future, and I can trust him. But he also knows our heart. He knows what you're thinking. Isn't that a strange thought? You're sitting there thinking, I hope Pastor Stan doesn't know what I'm thinking because this sermon should have ended five minutes ago and I should have been in the parking lot already, but Jesus doesn't care. <laughs> and Pastor Stan doesn't know your heart and doesn't know what you're thinking, and George just gave me a big smile, so I'm going to assume that everybody's happy here this morning. <laughs> in verses 33 through 30 through 50, is this whole dialogue with other people. Disciples walking along, arguing who's the greatest. And Jesus walks up to them and says, what are you talking about? They don't want to tell him. So he gets a kid and he says, look, this is what it means to be great. Because Jesus knew what they were saying. Not because he overheard them, but because he knows their thoughts. He knows our heart. He knows who we are inside and out. The disciples started judging some other people. Do you know what he said? You don't have any right to judge those people. You don't know what's in their heart. Just because you've been my disciple doesn't mean you can go pass judgment on another church, another Christian, another group of people. You're not knowing what they're thinking. Only God knows what others are thinking. That's why we can allow judgment to be with God and not with us. Amen? How often do we try to explain our behavior to Jesus? Or to other people. Have you ever been with somebody who tries to explain their behavior to you? And you sit there and say, you don't have to explain anything. And they just keep explaining. Same thing with God. When you're in the presence of your Savior, He doesn't need your explanation of, well, you know, Jesus, I was really a little bit too busy yesterday. Otherwise, I would have had my devotions. But can you give me a break? He doesn't need us to say that. He knows our heart better than we know. He knows our thoughts. He knows our innermost being. I have a good friend. He died a while ago. Quite a while ago, actually. His name is John Wesley. 
think he died 200 years ago. Fun fact, I have a, I won't go there, never mind. John Wesley, when he was in college, was a brilliant man. And he went to Oxford. And he joined a holy club. And he learned to be very methodical. Ta-da, the name Methodist, get it? And he did all kinds of rigid rule things. But he became legalistic. And Jesus knew that about him. And Jesus loved John. But John didn't get it yet because he had a very legalistic, rigid life. And then John got on a ship and came to America, and there was a horrible storm, and John panicked and was fearful of dying, and, and there were some Moravians on that ship, and they weren't afraid of dying, and my friend John saw them, and Jesus was working in his heart because Jesus knew him because Jesus is divine. And John came to America to a place called Georgia. We've heard of that place. It's further south. It's warmer there. They don't have nice winters like we have. And he failed as a missionary. He messed up. And he got in a really bizarre relationship with a woman named Sophie Hopke, and he refused her communion, and it was a mess. And God knew his heart. God loved him, and Jesus cared about him. And he went back on a ship back to England as an embarrassed, failed pastor missionary. And he got to know some people who were Moravians, who were able to help him see some things because Jesus knew his heart. And Jesus knew what needed to change in his life. And one day, he showed up at a place called Aldersgate where, of all things, they were reading the introduction to Luther's commentary on the Gospel of Romans. The rest of us would have fallen asleep. Okay? Like, you got to be kidding. I read that part of, of John Wesley's journals, and I'm like, how in the world does that inspire anybody? An academic treatise. But remember, Jesus knew his heart. And Jesus loved him because God's divine, and Jesus knew that that's what John Wesley needed to hear. And that night, his heart was strangely warmed, and he came to faith. Because he wasn't building a relationship with a self-help person, he was building a relationship with our Savior, Jesus, who knew him, who knew him from the inside out and knew exactly what he needed. Now, that's not what I needed to come to faith. I know how I came to faith, and I'm telling you, it wasn't through an academic work, but that's what he needed. And Jesus knows what you need. And I invite you today to work on your relationship with Jesus, not just because he's got good advice, but because he's God. He's your Savior. He gave his life for you. And he doesn't just want you to come to church and say, nice that my sins are forgiven. He wants us to get to know him better, to study his word, to be prayerful, to walk with him every day, to get together with other Christians, to grow in our faith. We've started having prayer each Sunday at the end of the message. And today it's a simple question. If you want to get to know Jesus better, just come forward and ask us to pray for you. That's simple.